Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. It's a, a great joy to gather you this morning, the first Sunday of Advent. And unlike last Advent season when um, we were studying through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, which didn't necessarily have much of a Christmas theme or ring to it, um, this year we've lined it up so that the, the birth story of the Lord Jesus Christ is what we'll be studying. Luke chapter 2 is where we'll be spending our time in the month of December. And the challenge with passages like these, passages that we've probably memorized, this was part of the passage last year for the commander's challenge for Awana, is they grow familiar. And we've, we've added in details. If you've seen Christmas movies or stories, there's sort of things you assume are there that aren't there necessarily. And so I'd like to read our passage and just pray that God would help us to come to his word with um, fresh eyes to see what is there and that seeing we might be changed. So let's read Luke 2, 1 to 7, and then we'll have a word of prayer. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to, the, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and lied him, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Lord God, in this, in this passage in your word, we read about the word became flesh, entering into this world, being birthed from a lowly peasant woman. Lord, we, we know this passage. We have read and reread this passage at Christmas time. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that your word would go forth and not return void. That it would be that fire, that hammer that it is. Lord, help us to see the glory of your Son. Help us to see your glory in the way that you orchestrated the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So our passage this morning is rather straightforward in regards to the text. The text breaks up neatly into three chunks. We, we see in the first um, three verses the sovereign decree of Caesar Augustus. And then we'll look at the difficult journey. And then we'll look at the humble birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I said before, these, these are familiar passages. But I think there's tremendous truth and encouragement here. Now, we've got to keep in mind as we read this what Luke's primary goal or purpose in writing was. Now, to do that, turn back to chapter 1 of Luke. We'll look at the first four verses. It's always helpful when a writer gives a purpose statement. The Apostle John, in writing his gospel, gives a purpose statement at the end. Luke gives his purpose statement at the beginning. He says in the first four verses of chapter 1, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also." having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, 
that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke's got two goals. One is ultimate and one is subultimate. His, his subultimate goal is to p- compile an orderly account, a carefully researched orderly account. We'll see that type of research evidenced in here as he's listing the, the kings, the regents, the governors of his, of his narrative. But ultimately, that orderly account is meant to produce certainty in us. Theophilus, he's assuming, has heard, has understood some of these things. In that sense, he's much like us. We've heard these stories before. We are familiar with these stories. And yet, Luke is writing that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So, that's his ultimate goal in writing, is to give certainty, to solidify faith and confidence. And we've seen the, the, the announcement of the birth of both Jesus and John the Baptist. We've already seen the actual birth of John the Baptist. And now, in parallel, we move in chapter 2 to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at it in three sections. But what, one of the things you're going to notice as we study through this is in each section, God's will is being fulfilled through different agents and in different ways. We're also going to see that God is sovereign and can be trusted with human history. So we begin, first three verses, with a sovereign decree. A sovereign decree. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So Luke, as a well-researched historian, starts by citing... The, the pagan Roman emperor in charge at this time. Now, if you've read through most of your Old Testament, you know that usually events are dated by Jewish kings. In the, king, in the year King Uzziah died. But one of the hallmarks after the Babylonian captivity is that the dating, as we saw even in Zechariah, are linked to pagan kings. This is a reminder, again, that Israel is not free. Israel is, is, is being ruled by a foreign power, they have returned to the land. They have a modicum of their freedom. They have a modicum of their, of their structure. Yes, they have a king. But he does what Caesar says. They're under the Roman Empire. Now, Octavian is a man who we know a fair bit about from extra-biblical history. And just to fill in some of the gaps, Octavian has become known for his administration in organizing the empire after an initial rise to power. He was born in September 63 B.C., He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, and after the murder of Julius Caesar, he was named chief heir and ruler in a triumvirate with Mark Anthony Lepidus. Lepidus fell from power in 36 BC, and and eventually he and Anthony went to war when Anthony sided with Cleopatra. And in 31 BC, Octavian won a decisive victory over Antony in Actium and was finally acknowledged as Augustus Caesar by the Senate in 27 BC. So you've got to understand, whereas Julius Caesar took power through basically a military coup that the Senate eventually didn't challenge, here is the first properly ensconced Roman emperor. Here is the one to whom the Senate gave the title of August, which is revered. Even in that title of Augustus, we see the beginning of what will become the emperor worship cult. At the time of Luke's writing already, Christians were being charged, challenged to offer incense to Caesar. Here's the beginning of that. When the Roman Senate gives 
um, gives Octavian the title of August. And that's actually the Latin. The, the Greek would have been Sebastos, revered. It's a religious term. You, you give veneration for somebody. And already, this is beginning in seed form as, as Caesar Augustus. And basically, they understood as he ruled the whole known world at that time. This is the world ruler. And he issues a sovereign decree that all the world should be registered. And then Luke says this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. So I just want to look briefly at Caesar Augustus' unwitting registration. And the, and the reason why I call it an unwitting registration is there's great irony here. Now, Caesar, why do, why do rulers do registrations? They do it to control their people. They do it to exercise dominion. In this case, it was linked with a tax. Potentially, a registration would give you an idea of how many men you could call upon for military service if need arise. And so he's, he's exerting force and rule and dominion, squeezing his empire, and yet his sovereign decree is really fulfilling the sovereign decree of the Lord God. That, that's the irony here. The man who thinks he is sovereign is actually fulfilling prophecies long, long ago. But before we, we deal with that, we've got to deal with um, the historical issues. By some accounts, there's, there's some questions about this census and what we know about from extra-biblical sources. This is listed by one of my commentators as the greatest difficulty in Luke's gospel historically. The problem is this. We only know of one census extra-biblically from Quinarius, and that took place about a dozen years later. It took place in AD 6. And Josephus records about a revolt that occurred when a census by Quinarius was given. In fact, and this is where we should give Luke some credit, Luke's aware of this too. In Acts chapter 5, 37, he records the council of the Pharisees describing how they should deal with the, the Christians. And they discuss how after him, he says... Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So it's not surprising that the census that provoked a small um, revolt gets the, gets the attention in the records. Now, there's, there's two possible ways of resolving this. One is to say that even though the, the, the census by Octavius, not Octavius, by Quinarius, um, even, even though that census occurred about eight, nine, ten years later, there was the second one, and he may have been governor twice. That's possible. I would just point you to the footnote, if you have an ESV Bible, the footnote that should be at the bottom of your page. And my footnote from verse 2 um, says this. It says, this was the registration before. The word protos prototype can mean first it can also mean before and I think the simplest solution it is no problem at all would be to read it this way this was the first, this was the registration before Quirinius was governor in Syria all, all he's saying is he's well aware of the, the 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 infamous census the one that caused the revolt he references it in Acts 5 this was a registration before that it might be that that Caesar issued it the first time people gave it a shot they found it burdensome they found it difficult and so when a decade or so later they ordered them to do it again some people rose up and said no I don't think there's a problem here I don't think there's a problem here at all 
I certainly don't think Luke, who's aware of the infamous census and references it, references it in Acts 5, is contradicting himself here. And if this is the biggest historical difficulty in Luke, then I think we're on solid ground. I think we're on solid ground. So Caesar Augustus, unwitting registration. And like I said, there is great irony here. This, this king is exercising dominion over his empire. He's trying to exercise rule. He's trying to more closely control his people. And yet he is doing nothing but fulfilling God's eternal plan, the Lord's eternal plan. I think, I think the biggest point we can get from this in this first section is this. God rules history. God rules history. History is, use a cheesy pun, his story. God rules history. Luke is writing this to a man who's heard these stories. He knows the prophecies, most likely. He's been taught these things. And and Luke's trying to show him how the the Lord God of heaven and earth rules, and he rules through and in spite of pagan kings, pagan Caesars. David Gooding writes this, For Augustus the king... The taking of, for Augustus, the taking of the census was one of the ways he employed to get control over the various parts of his empire. But, and here is the irony of the thing, in the process, as he thought of tightening his grip on his huge empire, he so organized things that Jesus, son of Mary, son of David, son of God, destined to sit on the throne of Israel and of the entire world, was born in the city of David, his royal ancestor, What first appeared to be a great show of Caesar's power actually proved the supremacy of God's sovereignty. God rules, and he is not threatened. His his plans are not weakened by what evil pagan kings and rulers do. Listen to Isaiah 46, 8 to 11. This is God speaking to his people. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. So God says, I'm God. There's no one like me. Here is one of the ways that I am unique, the Lord says. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all, not some, not most, all my purposes. Calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken And I'll bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. Now, this is good news. This is good news for us, especially if you're watching world events and you are discouraged and you are upset and you are wondering what's going on. I don't know what the future holds in the short run. I know what the future holds in the long run. But I know that whatever happens, The Lord's purposes are being fulfilled. His sovereign plan is being worked out through the agency even of men like Caesar Augustus. The Lord's will is being worked out through our government. The the Lord's plan is being worked out through, through all human governments, ultimately. Or listen to, listen to the lesson he taught Nebuchadnezzar and even other evil pagan king, a man who put up a statue of himself and called upon all of Babylon to worship it. 
The Lord humbled him. Nebuchadnezzar ends up ultimately penning some of the text of Scripture. And in Daniel chapter 4, after recounting his humiliation, his humbling, the hand of the Lord God, he writes this, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is sovereign. Now, yes, when we see things like the Paris attacks, we should weep. Yes, we should, we should hope that justice is done on the earth. Yes, we should be discouraged. But that discouragement and that weeping should sit alongside a confidence that as terrible as these things are, they are not thwarting, they are not stopping, they are not even slowing down in the least bit God's eternal plan. They didn't catch God by surprise. And he will use them along with all things to fulfill his purposes. Listen to Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works censuses according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Or Romans 8.28. For those who love him, he causes all things to work together for good. God can cause things like the Paris attack. Not, it's not a good thing, but it can work together in his counsel and plan for good. Our God is so great, he can do that. He can work with evil kings. And here's the point. Be confident as you look at history, as you look at the newspapers, as you look at the world around you. Yes, be involved. Do what good you can. Vote wisely. Mourn things worthy of mourning. Celebrate things worthy of celebration. But do all of that with a confidence that, that what we have cannot be shaken and God's purposes cannot be stopped. God used the Roman Empire and a census to get his son born where he wanted his son born. God is utterly and absolutely trustworthy and his rule of history is trustworthy. And so we don't need to be afraid we don't need to be in fear, wondering what's coming around the corner. Because we know the Lord God is ruling the heavens and the earth. This leads us to our second point, a difficult journey. A difficult journey. And I think these points build upon each other. If we consider God's sovereignty and God's rule, I think that will lead us to live different lives. I think we live differently if you're confident the Lord God reigns, if you're confident that even the most difficult and terrible things that you see working out around you are part of his plan, that he is using them for good. I think you can live difficult, different lives. We read in verses 4 through 5, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary as betrothed, who was with child. And we look now at Joseph and Mary's humble submission. See, in the first point, 
Caesar Augustus was God's unwitting tool. He was not willing. His purpose, Caesar's purpose was not to fulfill God's purpose. That was not what he wanted to do. The Lord God used him to fulfill his purposes in spite of his intent. Here are people who are submitting to God's will. And that's another point you can get. You will fulfill God's purposes. The question is, will you do it willingly or unwillingly? You will fulfill God's purposes. His, his will will be done. The question is, we fulfill it like Caesar, like Joseph and Mary. Now, it says Mary's his betrothed here, but almost certainly by this point, Joseph has legally married her. In Matthew's gospel, you can read it at the end of chapter one, um, when, when Mary returns from Elizabeth's, visiting with Elizabeth, she was there about three months, she's showing, and Joseph, being a righteous man, meant to cut off and end the betrothal which would take a divorce. He meant to send her away quietly and not to cause shame. And a vision, an angel comes to him and says, do not be afraid to take this woman for the child is holy. And when he wakes up, he takes her to be his wife, but he does not lay with her. And so Luke, in calling her his betrothed, I think is emphasizing their purity of physical conduct, even though she almost certainly would not be traveling with him to Bethlehem if she was simply his betrothed because she would probably just stay in her father's house. So this explains why she would travel with him to Bethlehem, because legally they are married, even though in a function they're acting like a betrothed couple. But I want you to stop and just consider the, the, the humble submission of Joseph and Mary. I mean, we get frustrated. I get frustrated when I have to pay taxes. I get frustrated when the census comes in the mail, and I've got to spend a couple hours filling it out. I just want you to imagine the scenario, especially for those of you who have kids. When you find out you're having a child, and yes, with Joseph and Mary, there was initially this, this wrapping their heads around the fact that they're having this, this son of the most high, a miraculous birth. But I imagine, like most parents, you start planning. Joseph's a carpenter, after all, and it's not hard for me to imagine that he's preparing a crib or someplace to put the baby boy. They're planning how they're, what they're going to do, what their life's going to look like. And all of a sudden, a decree comes out of nowhere. Drop what you're doing. So imagine this. If all of a sudden a law was passed in our country that demanded that everybody had to stop what they're doing, stop their work, stop their employment, and travel by foot, or maybe you'd make a comparison, a bicycle, comparing to, like, say, a donkey. This is a 70 to 90-mile journey. So imagine the, the law declared you had to stop what you're doing and walk to Ames and back. That's about 90 miles. <laughs> Ames, Ames and backs. Ames about 45 miles. You've got to walk there, maybe ride a bike, to Ames and back. You've got to stay when you, get, when you make that 90-mile journey. Who knows how long you have to stay for, for Caesar's men to conduct the census. She may be sitting there for weeks or months. In fact, Joseph and Mary do not return to Nazareth, Nazareth sorry, for a number of years. When the wise men come to visit and, and the child is a year or two old, they're still in Bethlehem. When they flee the Herod's decree to Egypt, they flee from Bethlehem. It's not until after they return from Egypt and Herod is dead that they then finally return back to Nazareth. I just want you to, just want you to grasp that. Men, if, you're, if your wife were in her second or third trimester... How would you feel about a decree that commanded you and your wife to travel 70 to 90 miles by foot in the second or third trimester of her pregnancy to a town where you had no guarantee of lodging, 
You had no guarantee of medical attention. You know, these, these people showed a submissive spirit that I think must be rooted in what we've seen already, the sovereignty of God. This is God's working. God stands behind all human rule. We are, a pe- we are living a country founded on revolt. When we thought the, the requirements were too high, we picked up guns and fought. And so it's hardwired into us. But the, the submission that we see here, fulfilling God's plan, again, Jesus wouldn't have been born in Bethlehem if Caesar had not ultimately fulfilled God's purpose. He also wouldn't have been born in Bethlehem if Joseph and Mary said no. We're not going. This is, this is too heavy. This is too strong, too unbearable. She's pregnant after all. Wouldn't be safe. I need to earn my money. All the reasons and all the justifications we can think for civil disobedience. And to be clear, if the government calls us to sin, we do not obey. The government tells us to sin, we do not obey. But according to Romans 13, 1 and 2, in, in every other sphere, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The other factor to consider is this. How often do you and I consider that when we've been obedient, when we're acting in faith, we expect life to go easy? Mary received some difficult news and she responded in faith. Let it be to me as the Lord has said. Joseph received a vision from an angel. They, they've, they've wrapped their heads around some difficult stuff. Joseph, you're going to be with this woman who's your wife. You're not going to touch her. You're not going to touch her till the baby is born. Mary, you're going to deal with the stigma of coming back and people are going to know and they're going to see deal with all that, and they respond in faith. They respond in obedience. And you'd think, well, surely then, when we're, when we're being obedient and we're starting to suffer for the Lord, then things are to smoothen out. Not always. Sometimes a decree comes that says, set aside your plans, all your plans for the baby and where he'd be born and his room. Set aside all that and leave your home, and you don't even know it, but you won't be back for years. Make a difficult journey, 70 to 90 miles, and in so doing, Scriptural prophecy is fulfilled. In so doing, centuries and centuries of Christians read of their faithfulness and see how God fulfilled his purposes through his people's submission. Joseph and Mary's humble submission. Again, we, can, we will fulfill God's purposes. Each and every one of us will. The question is, will we do it like Caesar, exercising our power and our might and our rights, and flexing our muscles, or will we do it, like Joseph and Mary, by submitting themselves to God and to his will? This this February, as you fill out your forms, and how accurately you fill them out, that can be a test of whether you view yourself like Caesar, an authority with rights, or as humble, submissive servants. God is sovereign, get the logic, and because God is sovereign, we can trust him to work through the agency of human governments. We can, even, when, even when governments do are burdensome and difficult and hard, we can trust him. And in trusting him, his purposes will be fulfilled and we will be blessed. Now, Joseph and Mary didn't know at the time this would go down in, in history. This was wonderful for them. 
This was wonderful that they would fulfill prophecy. Wonderful that all Christians for generations would see their faithfulness. All they knew at the time was, here's what we were planning for this miracle baby, and now we've got to scrap all that and do something really difficult and hard. That's all they knew at the time. Well, that's enough of that. We've we got to move. Now notice something else that appears in this paragraph. Twice David is mentioned. Twice David is mentioned. They were to go to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was at the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary as betrothed. And Luke is, is, in his writings here, is intentionally highlighting the Davidic connection. Again, he wants to produce certainty. And anyone who's read their Old Testament knows the Messiah has to be a descendant of David. Now, the first proto-gospel was given to the woman in Genesis 3. Her seed would crush and wound, would crush the serpent's head. The serpent would bite and wound his heel. And then that gets narrowed down. This is kind of like when we looked at rest last week, tracking it through the Bible. So first, first encounter, Genesis 3, to the woman, to Eve, your seed. Then to Abraham gets narrowed down. In your seed, he would bless the earth. And then if you turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel the Davidic covenant. We brushed up against this last week as well. Remember, David had rest from his enemies, and he wanted to make a house of rest for the ark. And so he calls Nathan and says, the Lord's been good to me. The Lord's blessed me. The ark's sitting in a tent, tabernacle. Let's make a house for God. And God turns around, and he's pleased with what David wants to do. But God, in effect, says, David, I never asked you to make me a a house. I'm going to make you a house instead. And we get the Davidic covenant, where it gets narrowed down even further. Starts with the woman, narrowed down to Abraham, narrowed down to David. Let's pick it up in verse 11. At the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, that same play on words that we have in English, you know, the house of Tudor, speaking of a dynasty, works in Hebrew. The same words being used. There's a play on words here. David wanted to build God a house. God's going to make a house for David. He's going to make a dynasty for David. I'll make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men. So in the first instance, this is talking about Solomon, because Jesus will not commit iniquity. This is in the first instance speaking about David's own son Solomon by the, the, the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. And Solomon does, in fact, build the temple. But ultimately, as this promise for an eternal throne continues, you either have to have Solomon as a son who has 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 a son, son, world without end on men, or along will come a special son, a son who doesn't die. Turn to to Psalm 2. Because remember that language, I will be to him a father, he will be to me a son. Psalm 2 takes this theme and develops it. Even further. And it even ties in some of the themes we've already looked at. God's, God's not threatened by the nations of the world. He's not threatened by their judgments. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, which in the Hebrew is Messiah or Messiah, saying, let us burst apart their bonds and cast their cords from us. God's not threatened, is he? He who sits in heaven laughs. All the nations of the world want to oppose God. Is God threatened? He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the psalm has already connected the theme of Messiah, or anointed in verse 2, with king. And then in verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And there's referencing the Davidic covenant. And so in case anyone thought that Solomon was the final fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, Psalm 2 tells us that this, this, this individual who's coming will be the Messiah, will be king, will be the son. And then in verse 8, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now David had military security and David had a large border, but he did not have a C2C empire. Now that language of smashing with a rod of iron gets picked up in Revelation a number of times of the Jesus rebuke and ultimate rule of the nations. And so in case anyone thinks in, in 2 Samuel 7 the Davidic covenant is fulfilled with Solomon, Psalm 2 makes it abundantly clear, no, we're awaiting, we're awaiting a Davidite to come who is greater than David, whose rule will exceed David's, whose rule will never have an end. And here, Luke is making it clear to us, point one, this birth is fulfilling the Davidic covenant. This birth fulfills the Davidic covenant. The other thing he draws attention to is this birth takes place in the Davidic city. The Davidic city. Listen to Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So it's written long, long before Caesar Mary, Joseph were around. And through Caesar's unwitting registration, Jesus is born in the right place at the right time. Through Joseph and Mary's humble submission, Jesus is born at the right place and at the right time. Those are the first two agents who fulfill God's plan. Caesar unwittingly. Joseph and Mary in humble submission. But I want to now look briefly at a humble birth. A humble birth. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. A couple, a couple things to draw your attention to. The word translated as inn probably doesn't mean inn. It, it can mean inn, but more naturally it means an extra room. More naturally it means sort of a guest house. This is the same word that in, in Luke 22, Jesus goes up and, and, and has his last supper with the disciples. They do it in the upper room, the extra room, the guest room. Same room, same word. Luke also is familiar with and uses the more technical term for in. It, so it could be an in, but more likely, 
This is simply some relative, this is his hometown after all, more likely this is some relative or somebody who was hoping to find space in their extra room and there wasn't, it was all full. So all of those stories of the stingy innkeeper, I'm sorry, Isla. All those stories, they're possibly true, Isla. They're possibly true. They just have no root in anything in the Bible. But that's okay. It still could have happened. No. Uh, and that's what I'm saying. We come to this text with assumptions, with assumptions. Now, we don't know how far along Mary was. I tend to think when they traveled, she was pretty far along because I can only imagine Joseph would have tried to move heaven and earth to find a place for his pregnant wife to give birth, and he was unable to. So it's possible they hung out in, in Bethlehem for a month or two before she gave birth. I just tend to think the way the text tells the story, it seems like it was shortly after they arrived. I can't be certain of that. That's why I said when they were traveling, she was in her second or third trimester. But they're going to stay in Bethlehem for a couple of years until they flee to Egypt. And they arrive. And again, get back to your your mentality. You're, You're trying to be faithful. You've done the first hard thing. The first hard thing is accepting God's announcement that you will give birth to a child even though you've never had intercourse. Or for Joseph, you will have to deal with the scandal of everyone thinking you guys were sleeping together before you were married. And they accept that. They accept that in faith. Then they get the next hard piece of news. Set aside your little baby room, set aside your crib, pack your bags, you're going on a long journey. And they they do that. The last piece of hard news is you get to your destination and there is no room. There is no room. I can just imagine the the, the, the struggle of fear and anxiety. I, I, I know in my own mind, my concerns, as as each of my wife's children are born more and more quickly. There's this, you know, forget get him to the church on time. Get him to the hospital on time. I, I, I swear if the Lord gives us a fifth, it'll just be a matter of minutes um, with the way things are speeding up. And I know the anxiety I feel to, to get her to the hospital. Um, I can only imagine Joseph's anguish that he was unable to find shelter, unable to find a place for his wife. And they respond again in faith. But I want to look now briefly at Jesus' own obedience, Jesus' selfless obedience. I know Luke doesn't draw our attention to it in this text, but he's writing to people who've already heard these things before. He's writing to confirm what we know. And so I just want to draw attention to something else we know. Because the big theme I want you to get from this is this. The Lord will accomplish his purposes regardless of your motivation. But it's far, far better to humbly submit and obey than it is to rule as a king and, 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 and go to hell. And it's far, far better to follow the example of Joseph and Mary and now ultimately the example of Jesus. If you think Joseph and Mary had it hard, if you think they had to put up with, with difficult things, we don't even scratch the surface on what the Lord Jesus set aside to come down to earth. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11 as we look at Jesus' selfless obedience. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we look at, we look at Joseph and Mary's submission and how difficult that was. Understand that what the son did was infinitely, infinitely greater. No matter how low you can imagine yourself stepping down, no matter how, how much shame you think you could heap upon yourself, no matter how much inconvenience you could imagine yourself receiving, it's nothing. Jesus lived with the Father in perfect fellowship with the holy angels covering their eyes, covering their feet, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Riken writes this, what kind of welcome did Jesus deserve? Think about that. What type of welcome did Jesus deserve? Jesus deserved to have every person from every nation come and worship him. He deserved to have every creature in the entire universe, from the fiercest lion to the tiniest insect, come to his cradle and give him praise. He deserved to have the creation itself offer him worship, with the rocks crying glory and the galaxies dancing for joy. He is the Son of God, and anything less than absolute acknowledgement of his royal person is an insult to his divine dignity. But what kind of welcome did he receive? When accommodation was given, in short, everything we know about the birth of Jesus points to obscurity, indignity, pain, and rejection. One of the greatest mysteries of our universe is that when God the Son became a man, he spent his first night in a barn. The Son who had never felt want, just imagine, just These are some mind-bending realities. The son who'd never felt want, all of a sudden, is hungry. The son who'd never felt pain feels the pain of the umbilical cord being cut. The son who had never known discomfort feels cold, all for the first time, entering into our world, and entering in in a very different way than we'd expect a king to enter in. Um, J.C. Ryle writes this, what we can see in the entrance and the birth that God establishes for his son, we see here the grace and the condescension of Christ. Had he come to save mankind with royal majesty, surrounded by his father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace... With power and great authority, we should have had reason enough to wonder. But to become poor as the very poorest of mankind and lowly as the very lowliest, this is a love that passeth knowledge. It is unspeakable and unsearchable. Never let us to forget that through his humiliation, Jesus has purchased for us a title for glory. Jesus' selfless obedience and the Son of Man born in a manger. And so what we see here is God will accomplish his will. It is so much better for him to accomplish his will through his willing subjects. You see Joseph and Mary's willingness to submit to obey. They don't insist on their rights. They don't flex their muscles. They don't say, don't tread on me. They obey. They obey a political leader who is already in the makings of setting himself up as a god to be worshipped, and they obey. 
And Jesus sets aside his divine rights and privileges, and he obeys. He obeys. And we see the glory and the wonder and the salvation wrought from God's people's obedience. We also see that God will accomplish his purposes despite their unwillingness. So as we, as I call the worship team up for the final song, and you guys can come up, as I call the worship team up for the final song, I just want you to consider the marvel of God's sovereignty. He can be trusted. He rules history. He, he, he declared it from the beginning and he brought it to pass. The prophecies were fulfilled. The son of David was born in David's town. And so now, I think it's only fitting that we stand and we worship in adoration.